sometimes people's motivations are not lined up with what they're doing. And I think that as a manager is your responsibility to dig in. People might not be motivated by whatever project they're on, or they might not be motivated by title, or they might not be motivated by stock. Most importantly, they might not be motivated by the same things you're motivated. And I think as a manager, you've got to have empathy for all different types of approaches and interests. And I think that that's where some managers struggle. So they try to run their same playbook on every employee. Yeah. And so someone appearing to be lazy or disengaged might just not be yeah. motivated by exactly what they're doing, but you could put them on something else and they completely flourish and shine. Hi, I'm Jubin, go-to-market partner at Kleiner Perkins, and this is GTMG, a show that interviews world-class revenue and go-to-market leaders to explore how they operate, think, and deploy grit every day in order to build incredible companies. Speaking of world-class companies, there are more incredible startups in the Kleiner portfolio than I've ever seen. When I was operating, I would have begged to be in some of these companies. If you're listening, and we don't do sponsorships on this show, so I figured I'd use this opportunity. If you're listening and you are inspired by the stories of my guests and you wanna find the next incredible ride for you, reach out to me. Let's find an amazing job in the Kleiner portfolio. Now let's get to the episode. Welcome to the show. I start all of these the exact same way. I will read your background back to you and I will probably screw things up. Although I will say I've been on a bit of a hot streak lately. So let's see. And then we'll go from there. Sounds great. Okay. You got your BA at Bucknell, graduated with honors, blah, blah, blah. Then you went to the Anderson School of Business at UCLA. Very well educated. Then you went to client care. That's the job title. Yeah. It was a service source. I knew I was going to screw it up. As soon as I got cocky, I knew I was going to. It's all good. You're on a roll. All right. Then you went to Salesforce. You were a marketing manager there for a year. And then, so did you start as a product marketing manager? I started as a product marketing manager at Salesforce. Okay. In 2006, seven. 2007. Yes. Okay, good. And then senior product marketing manager, a couple years doing that, director of product marketing, a uh, year doing that, senior director of product marketing, CMO of desk.com for a year, SVP of marketing for sales cloud, which was a pretty big, the biggest BU there. Okay. The biggest BU. Who was your sales counterpart there? Like during that job? Well, so at Salesforce, it's not, they don't necessarily have a specialty team for sales cloud because that's their core product. But I was partnered with Adam Blitzer was the general manager right. at the time. Right. Yeah. Right. Stud. Then, <laughs> no? Do you disagree? T- we're like really good friends. Oh. I'll, I'll, I'll uh, pass it on. Oh, he'll, love, he'll love it. So then <laughs> I've actually never met him, but all I've heard is incredible things. He's awesome. Good. I was hoping you were laughing and maybe he sucked or something. No, um, no. And then you went to Twilio. What, like two, three thousand people when you joined? A thousand. A thousand? Mm-hmm. January of 2018. It's basically going to be four years. That's right. And as of today, so today being three weeks to four weeks before the audience hears this, you have left Twilio and are the incoming CMO of Attentive. That's right. And you took zero days off. I did. I got to ask you, not to get ahead of ourselves here, but sure. like, did no one give you the advice of like, hey, you just had a four year sprint, two of which was, you know, at your house yeah. with a few kids around. I don't know. You didn't want to like, you don't want to take a couple of days off. So I, I did sneak in a small vacation in between. So it's not okay. that dramatic. But yes, of course, like a lot of people had given me that advice. And honestly, I had long-term plans of taking off half a year and, and really kind of, you know, thinking about what I wanted to do in the future. And sometimes you can't line up things timing wise. And I had watched attentive as a customer and when they reached out, I knew it was an opportunity I didn't want to pass up. So, okay. Fair enough. Can I ask you a pretty direct question to get things going? Sure. You are a self-proclaimed above average bowler. (laughs) What, (laughs) what is average? I'd like to know the score. I'm always comfortably over like 120. Oh, you're pretty good. Yeah. Okay. I'm in a bowling league. Oh. Every Tuesday in the Presidio. Oh, nice. Yeah. This is our off season. We like needed to regroup, you know, after yeah. a tough couple seasons. We only have a second place trophy to show for it. I can't believe I'm sharing this story. We're called the Wild Turkeys. Nice. And if 
anybody bowls a turkey. Three Which strike, is three strikes, three strikes in, in, a row in a row for the audience. Or, and there's a team of six of us, but four it's only four at a time that bowl. Or if all four of us bowl a strike in the same frame, then that's a wild turkey. So the person that seals the deal or that makes the turkey has to do a shot of wild turkey. Buys a round of wild turkey shots for the team. I love it. So it seems like it's just an excuse for us to get drunk on Tuesdays. <laughs> However, you would be surprised. We don't get as drunk as we should because we're not actually that good. Yeah. So we don't. It's hard do, to get a turkey. We don't. We don't bowl as many turkeys as we'd like to. But anyway, bowler. Yeah. Well, my bowling origin story is is I, I feel like it like paints my parents in the wrong light. But we used to go to Lake Tahoe every summer with uh, my cousin, my aunt, my mom. The moms would all go during the week and my you know different times. The dads would come in the weekend after they you know worked the, through the week. And we were right by this bowling alley. It was not too far from the cabin we always stayed. My mom and my aunt would let me and my cousin, who were like 11 at the time, you know, I think they'd get, we'd get stir crazy because there'd be rain or whatever. We couldn't go to the beach that day. And my mom and aunt would be like, we'll just go to the bowling alley. So yeah. we were like 11 year olds going to the bowling yeah. alley for like hours on end and we loved it yeah. so uh yeah i think that's uh that started my early obsession with bowling i have a similar story my parents are divorced and my dad would pick me up saturday nights or sunday mornings from the south bay and he lived in like san bruno which is south of san francisco and he was in a bowling league every sunday with his friends and he would pick me up and we would go to Homestead Bowl, which is in the South Bay. And I'd spend hours there. And they had these chocolate chip cookies that they would bake. And for anyone that knows me, I'm still addicted to chocolate chip cookies. And I would spend hours there in the arcade. I would watch them. They'd get pissed. I would want a bowl. They would lose. They would win. It was a whole, it was a whole <laughs> ordeal. So anyway, I'd spend a, a majority of my Sundays in the bowling alley. Nice. Somewhat of a happy place, I yeah, guess. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I think you get a little bit of the full slice of life at the bowling alley. I wish there was some like awesome metaphor that we could just start drawing. But anyway, bowling. Okay. Dad was a lawyer. You're the youngest of five. Dad is still a lawyer. Still I will a lawyer. say at 82. So Come that's on. one. Practicing? You know, maybe that's why I'm not taking a break between my two jobs. Practicing lawyer? Yep. <laughs> is, is that it, a laugh? <laughs> <laughs> He's still with it. We always are checking wow. in on that front. No, wow. he is. Yeah. He's uh he's sharp as attack. You actually, not on your LinkedIn, but you started as an equities trader. You said something that I wanted to just dive into. You said that your, your father always used to write a list of 20 boxes that he's going to do on a given, what, day, week, month? I don't know the time frame. It seems like you've picked up on that a little bit. Tell me more. Oh, absolutely. I mean, my dad's been a huge influence in my career and just the way I operate. And, you know, like I said, he's 82 years old and still working today. He just had a discipline. He's kind of like the like an Italian Tom Brady. Like he would, you know, he's up at like five every morning. He works out. He does his calisthenics, as he says. He still does it to this day. And he's, you know, he's like completely upright, you know, active. And, you know, I think uh, doing part a lot to that. And then he would come to the kitchen and he's got a big, huge yellow legal pad and he would w write what he was going to do for the day. He still does this. And, you know, he would just have his to-do list and he's super religious about it. And, you know, I think has just been productive because he always kind of has this write it down mentality and, and, you know, just focuses on what he needs to do. And I've picked that up later in life. I wouldn't say I've always been that way. But just with the chaos of work and my responsibilities growing there and my responsibilities at home with three kids under, you know, 12 years old, I've had to just kind of get more regimented about that and, you know, make sure that I'm proactively managing my time and not letting the world happen to me. Yeah. And is your mother still? No, my mom actually passed away, sadly, uh, when I was about 29. So, oh, um, so I'm so sorry. So like three years ago. No, I'm kidding. Uh <laughs> I'm a little bit older than that, but uh, yeah, no, it was, um, you know, my, I'm the youngest of five kids and my uh, mom had a super rare cancer and I was super lucky in a lot of ways to have a few years with her before she passed. I'm so sorry. I didn't know that. No, no, don't worry. She was a wonderful woman. And, you know, we, uh, we all kind of, you know, still celebrate her in a lot of ways. Can I ask another question? Yeah, sure. Do you feel like part of your dad's drive is like filling his time. It's keeping him motivated. It's giving him a sense of purpose, like working at this age. Yeah. I mean, I think that I honestly think whether or not my mom was here or not, my dad would still be in the same position. Yeah. Like he just, that's like, 
he's always been that way. And I don't want to paint him in the wrong way either because he's a fantastic father and such a sweet person and like just one of the best people I know. But, uh, you know, he, my mom would tell the story or my dad told the story not that long ago. They were on kid four or five. I, I think it was, I wasn't here yet. And, uh, my dad was working super hard, getting his own firm off the ground and everything else. And my mom was just at her wits end, like, get me away from these kids. And he's like, all right, we're going to go to Hawaii. I'm going to, you know, we're going to get away and, you know, have a week away or whatever. And they get to, this is like in the seventies, they get to the airport in Kona or wherever. And there's a guy with a, like, I don't even know what kind of mobile cell phone or whatever kind of, I'm sure this thing was the size of a huge cardboard box. And he's sitting on the tarmac for my dad being like, you've got to call back to wherever because, you know, something's blown up with whatever on, on vacation. On the vacation. So my, and my dad's just like, I'm so sorry, you know? Oh, like, man. So. Were you out of business school at 29? I had just moved home. I was living in New York when I was a trader, moved back to UCLA for business school. And I had thankfully, you know, I mean, you know, you never, it's never a positive thing, but I was back on the West Coast when Makes I found sense. out my mom was sick. So, yeah. You said a quote somewhere. I've watched hours of you everywhere and listened to you for most of the day. So sorry. I don't know where, <laughs> but uh, I enjoy it. It's, it's a treat. But you said that somewhere in passing, I would much rather my kids remember me for being on the sideline of the soccer game than having perfectly organized drawers. I thought that was really cool. I, tell me more about that. Well, I think that there's always a pressure as a mom and, and I think, you know, dads feel some of this pressure too, but there's a you know pressure to like keep up with the Instagram lifestyle. And not only are you, you know, working a C-level job, but you also, your kids have perfect monograms and bows and, you know, everything's, you know, super organized and you, know, you just got everything kind of figured out. And that's just not the way that I think that real life works. And so, you know, for me, I've tried, I, I'm super fortunate and where I can outsource things that I don't think are going to be as meaningful to my kids. I absolutely do that. Like if I don't have to, you know, be folding, pairing little kid socks at, you know, 10 at night, I'm going to figure out a way to get that done, you know, by other means. And, you know, for me, I think like the most important thing I can do is to be there for them and the times they need me the most, if that's, you know, um, making sure I am able to say goodnight to them every night, if that's making sure I'm at a practice and kind of standing up for them when I need to with a teacher or a coach or whatever it is, like those are the times I really want to make sure I'm there. And that's my hierarchy of prioritization and other people prioritize things different ways that are completely legitimate too. I'm oversimplifying the world by just talking about you know, sock drawers or whatever. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. that's where I've tried to to focus my time if I have it. Yeah. Well, we're way off the script now, but I guess I tend to do that. So there is someone who I admire deeply, who I was having this conversation with a couple of weeks ago. We were walking around Palo Alto. He's probably listening to this. And one of the questions that I was asking him was kind of like poking and prodding at this outsourcing thing. He said, one of the tough things now that money is not an object in my life is knowing where to draw the line. And I thought it was a really interesting just concept. And like, not to put you there, but you're there. Like you've had an incredible run in your career and Twilio has done quite well since you've been there. So let's assume that money isn't really an object. How do you know? He's like, look, we could fly private, but like, do we want to be the family that flies private? We could get a cook. But do we want to lose our sense of autonomy or knowing what to outsource when and keeping some form of maybe the way that I construed it was identity around who you are and where you come from and the spirit and ethos of your 20 box checklist and getting through that. Do you ever think about that or am I living in a different world? I don't know. I know. I mean, I think those are real questions people have to ask themselves when money's not yeah. an issue. And I think for me, creating a home is not just about decorating it or making sure it's all tricked out or whatever else. It's actually like creating the home, having traditions that, you know, having meals that you cook every holiday, or we have a tradition at our house, right? We have a couple that we're best friends with that live down the street. We always watch a set of holiday movies over the course of the weeks leading up to Christmas. And so, and we totally geek out on this, but we'll have like meals that we make that like pair with the movie. Like it's just silly. But, you know, that I'm, I'm never going to be like, here's my private chef to yeah. make meatballs for our viewing of the elf. And for me, there are rituals and things that you could technically outsource, but I think they're huge family building and communication moments that 
I'm never, that's something I've never, no matter how much money I think, I you think know, it's fair. you add, I, I wouldn't think to outsource that. Yeah. 15 minutes in, I'm putting you on the serious hot seat. Yeah, here. seriously. I didn't, I didn't this is, uh, <laughs> okay. I have, I have so much more. Oh man, I'm so excited. So you tweeted something years ago. I don't even know if it was years ago. I'm just being dramatic. It's at some point. It was a picture. It was a picture of like a, what looked like an old school restaurant. And it said cold beers and cheeseburgers. And then the caption that you put was products that market themselves. My question that I thought about when I saw that was what other products, what other things give you that same emotion where you can almost taste it when you see it? And it doesn't have to be food, but I don't know. Is there anything else that comes to mind? Yeah. I mean, I had a whole Twitter thread that I was going to follow that up with because there's these like product marketing extra messaging positioning exercises you oh, go so you through. Oh, thought about this. Well, it's more of an expansion on my original tweet, which uh -huh. I, of course, I thought was genius and hilarious <laughs> at the time. But, you know, you could do like the value-based approach to what that restaurant offers. And it's like always full and, you know, never thirsty or, you know, like, you, and there's like product marketing goes through these evolutions where like, okay, we need to be value-based or no, we need to be, you know, positioning a platform or no. And so I think I just through the torture of being a career product marketer, I went through all the iterations of what some of my former bosses would have, how they would have, you know, made me position that differently. But to answer your your question, yeah, I mean, I think like to think about it for a second. I'm gonna get an answer, so you can think about yeah, it. Yeah, I gotta but, think about it. But for I a want second. an answer. But there at some absolutely point. are. Sometimes the literal marketing is the best. Like I always used to quote the Expensify tagline, which was "expense reports that don't suck." Like it was just very straightforward. I think sometimes people try to be too fancy and try to be too sophisticated and they lose their value prop or they lose the simplicity in that approach. And so I always like straightforward copy. I like copy that's alliterative. That's I, I like B2B copy that's written like a consumer brand would write it. And that's normally, if you think about it, it's normally pretty straightforward, but it's also memorable. It's you know straightforward and memorable and you know, that's what I always kind of try to reiterate with my team when I'm reviewing things, if it's a homepage or if it's a press release headline or whatever it is. You mean like on the 101 when I drive by the billboard every day that says, ask your developer? Yeah, that, exactly. That I mean, I can't take credit for that. That but kind that of straightforward? Uh, yeah, it's, I mean, that's it was genius. Straight, that's, right in your, that's right in your bowling strike zone. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. So at Salesforce, what was the worst job you had there? Oh, gosh. <laughs> I'm sorry. That. I couldn't help myself. What was the worst part of it? I just read this thing and I'm like, okay, superwoman over here went from product marketer to CMO of desk.com for one year and then became the SVP of marketing for the biggest BU there. Come on, that's not relatable. No, oh, come on. That's just... Yeah, well, I mean, I think that there are, yeah, sure, on paper, it might be like, okay, this seems like it was just this fast track. But when I started at Salesforce, being on, you know, I was on the App Exchange and Salesforce is, I don't think it's any secret, Salesforce is very much a direct selling machine. And so the partner ecosystem was new to them and it was not going to be always the kind of bright, shiny penny. But, you know, a huge caveat that with the fact that having a huge ecosystem is such a great platform validator for a company that was trying to go to that direction. So it wasn't all bad, but it was definitely not, you know, I would definitely had to learn how to be pretty gritty and to command resources and be scrappy and figure out how to kind of make a name for ourselves, even within Salesforce. Salesforce has such a huge selling army that sometimes your best marketing can be internally to the sales team, because if you can get them to focus, that's a huge mm -hmm. lever for your business. Mm -hmm. And it was a great first place for me to land. It wasn't easy, but I think it, it really forced me to learn how to wear different hats and to internally market what my team was doing. And that helped launch me into the next role running marketing for desk.com, which was a acquisition at the time for Salesforce. I wanted a juicier answer. You know that I, know. I, I wanted you to kick some third around. You didn't do it. I actually, I love something about all of my teams really. And sure there's pluses and minuses and there's all Salesforce was going through crazy growth. So there's always days that were, and we worked super hard. There were a lot of, you know, nights and weekends I worked and I had super little kids at the time and that was hard. But at the end of the day, it was such a fun experience. I learned so much and I have probably 
40 friends I could text right now from Salesforce that are friends for life. And, you know, that's a pretty cool experience. It's probably all the ones that are liking your goodbye Twilio posts. <laughs> One of 2,000 at this point, probably 40 of 2,000. Thank goodness. I saw an article that came out and it was like 11 CMOs that have been produced from Salesforce. And of course, Overachiever U was one of them. And I was just thinking like, what is in the water there? You know, like what is up with that? And it's funny because there's only a couple other coaching trees, as I call it, that I've seen this from before. LinkedIn is a big one. I have a lot of LinkedIn alumni on this show who are now generally like CROs. But anyway, I'm just making my foray into the, the marketing side. I've also seen that from PTC. What's up with that? Salesforce, I didn't realize it so much. And these are like big time CMOs. Like these are like the CMOs of Confluent and Twilio. Like these are not like just not like Joe Schmo CMOs working at 10 people startups. Yeah. I mean, Mark is a master marketer. Mark Benioff is just incredible at messaging positioning. And it really came from the top down. And Salesforce was the best marketing training in a lot of ways. They just had a format and a template that everyone kind of picked up and learned. And that would take shape in a first call deck. Like everyone would have a similar kind of structure to the first call deck that would take shape in our first party events. Like you knew what was expected in terms of creating a great demo or having a great customer on stage. Like there was just a formula for it. And when you joined the team, you were brought into that and you had to kind of pick it up quickly. You also had to be a great presenter. You had to be able to get on stage and command the room, be able to tell a story. Those were all kind of parts of the mix of, of moving up in the organization and taking on more responsibility. And that really sticks with people beyond Salesforce. Like, I'll still say things like, you know, what's your money slide? And that was always kind of like the core value prop slide for Salesforce. I could say that to any Salesforce marketer and be like, oh, yeah, OK, here it is. Like, this is what it looks like. And this is how it should be structured. Like, there's just they had there's a total separate language at Salesforce when it comes to marketing that's just kind of taught and ingrained in people as you're there. So again, I watched you do a few presentations over the last couple of days. It struck me that you were quite good at presenting. Did they train you to do that? Absolutely. And I did not start that way at all. I was like, I'll tell a story that hopefully makes my trajectory more relatable. But I remember being like a couple months into my terrible role on the app exchange. <laughs> and my boss at the time turned to me and said, hey, I can't present at our world tour event, which is like our road show at the time. She's like, you've got to, can you step in and do it? I'm like, okay, sure. I'm like, well, how long am I presenting? And she's, or I said, you know, what partner's presenting with me? And she said, oh, you know, I think it's Eloqua or something at the time. This is I'm dating myself, but, and I said, okay. Well, and she goes, but you know, why does that matter? I'm like, well, how long am I presenting? She goes, oh, you know, 40, 45 minutes. And yeah, I'm like, straight out of business school. It's my first real job in software after I, I worked at Service Source. And I came home. I'm like, oh, my God, I'm going to get fired. Like, I've been here for three weeks. I'm going to get fired. And she I got this deck with some speaker notes. And I basically I memorized the whole deck like word for word. And anyone I was living in the marina at the time, any of my friends that would come by my apartment, I'd be like, sit down. I'm going to tell you about the eight secrets to CRM success. So just get ready for it. I know you want to go watch Blue Angels, but just have a seat. And I practiced, practiced, practiced. I got there and I had memorized it word for word and I repeated it word for word. And I got off stage. I'm like, phew, I nailed that. And I sat down to next to this woman, Ann Chen, who's lovely, still at Salesforce, fantastic human being. And I was like, what'd you think? She goes, that was one of the worst presentations I've no. ever seen. She gave that feedback to you? No way. <laughs> She'll probably have a different because recount you were, of the story. Because you were just so robotic. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was not my talk track. It was some random person in marketing's talk track that I just memorized. It was awful. So that was a traumatic first experience. But it's one thing that I thought you're either born with or you're not. And that's absolutely not true. Totally. And I think it's a mix of getting help and getting coaching, but also just the repetition of it and just getting you know more comfortable with it. Yeah. But it took me a while. I love that story. I joined Kleiner. I had like all the insecurities that one would coming into a new industry, a new job, the youngest person, blah, 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 blah. Right. So the reason I took the job was because it was such a challenge, but it was all the same reasons that I was like nervous. 
And after a month or two, I felt like I gathered enough data to confidently put a plan together. And for some reason, I'm so stupid. This is crazy in retrospect, but every presentation that I saw was in Google Slides. And so for some reason, I thought that it should be in Google Slides. Everybody else does things in Google Slides and I should also conform to this presentation style. I've never used Google Slides and maybe this is just an excuse for me being an absolute idiot, but it turned out terrible. The content, I think in hindsight, was actually pretty good strategically. We're still kind of marching in the same direction, but I put it on the boardroom TV and I was mortified. The borders and margins were like disgusting and black. It was like from a 50s movie. The partner started laughing at me. It was like month one or two, so early. And I was like, I can't believe, I literally said, I'm sorry. I, I can't believe I, right. I can't believe I'm putting this in front of you. And I said, well, I guess we can just focus on the content because nobody's gonna wanna look at these slides. <laughs> so they started laughing. And so anyway, I actually barely even do slides anymore. I think I'm so embarrassed by that. Okay, all right, moving <laughs> right along. I heard from a birdie that during your 10 plus years at Salesforce, marketing and the way that it lived in the organization changed a bunch. So like, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, I don't wanna rewrite history here, but like first it was centralized that rolled up to a CMO that went up to Benioff, then it was decentralized that rolled up to a cloud lead with a dotted line to a CMO. And I guess at that point was that you were the dotted line at Sales Cloud. That's right. I've been at large organizations, not that large, but large where like things shook up so much that you can't ever, you really feel like you can't get your feet underneath you. I don't know. I guess the question is like, how did that affect your relationship with the sales team? How did you like continue to kind of like roll with those types of punches when structurally things just change so often? To be clear, those big changes from marketing, all living in marketing to product marketing, living in the business units, there was a good six or seven years where it was all structured than another like six years where it was. So they weren't like overnight yeah. kind of changes. But if you think back into the history of Salesforce, you could understand why it happened. Like when Salesforce started, it was mainly a one cloud company. It was Salesforce automation and yep. that's where it was. And then over time and pretty quickly, they added service cloud, they yep. added a marketing cloud. And so with that, they started hiring more general managers and a true general manager really wants to own the thing from soup to nuts and understand not just the product and the roadmap, yep. but also what levers they have from a go-to-market yep. standpoint. And so that's when you start to see them create more of kind of a mini CMO role for each of the clouds. And I think that to kind of go back to one of your earlier questions about how Salesforce has bred a lot of CMOs, I do think it's partially a lot of the people on that list were these GMs former, that were getting a bunch of responsibility. Yeah. Was your first swag at that? Were you the GM of desk.com? Was that your first CMO type broad responsibility thing? Yeah. So I wasn't, there was a GM and a CMO, like a head of marketing would run, report. That to makes the, sense. So I was the head of marketing for desk.com reporting to a GM. And yeah, so that was my first foray into it. And so you moved kind of overnight from being a product marketer who was just focused on the messaging positioning to also having to really understand the full marketing mix from lead to close to adoption marketing even. And so that was a shift for a lot of the product marketers. And, and some decided to stay more in like a corporate marketing function where they would just focus on the messaging positioning and some wanted to gravitate more to these generalist roles. To your point, the product marketing thing is all you've done essentially, right? How did you, I'm super curious, like fill in your blind spots, which were a lot in marketing at that point, right? A, how did you build the confidence to know that you could do all those other things? And then B, and I hate doing two part questions, but B, how did you go about learning? I always say desk.com, although pipeline wise, it's one of the smaller pipeline numbers I've owned, I learned the most in that role. And the reason was because two things, not to have a two part answer, <laughs> but it was two things. One, I had an awesome mentor and manager in Layla Seca, who's kind of famous in Salesforce lore and just an amazing female leader. And she believed in me and we'd worked together on AppExchange, that terrible place. And um, <laughs> she brought me over there knowing that I didn't have the full set of capabilities yet. But, you know, second, just being on that job, it was great to learn on us at a smaller scale, all the things that needed to happen. And I, a lot of it came down, I realized very quickly, 
into hiring people underneath me that were those experts. It's really rare as a CMO to walk in and be an expert on comms, an expert on events, an expert on product marketing, an expert on demand gen. There's such different functions and skill sets. And so you realize quickly that your main job is to be really good at hiring and identifying talent and identifying talent that's going to meet the needs of the business that that you're covering. So I think that role really set me up. I'd say even more so than running Sales Cloud, which was a much larger business to be a CMO at a company outside of Salesforce. Yep. Two-part questions deserve two-part answers, don't they? Were you like, okay, did you immediately just say, yep, I'm ready? I mean, there's some days I still don't think I'm fully ready. So, you know, even though I've been doing it now for a while, you know, there's always, there's the market's always moving and tech's always- at that point, when you went from product marketing to the CMO of desk.com, did they just dub you? Like, did you just like, hey, this is this is yours now? Did you become a good fella? You know, like, uh, or like, I don't know, how'd that go down? I'm just really curious. Yeah. And then were you like, yep, I'm ready. Here we go. Let's do it. Well, I mean, I, I want to come up with a better, as a marketer, I should do this. I want to come up with a better term of fake it till you make it. But there is a little bit of that. You just have to kind of get out there and start and trust your gut, but also hire those right people to help you yep. on the places where you might not be as strong. And then it's all about setting up a plan, communicating that plan and coming back and saying, here's where we hit it and here's where we have work to do. But, you know, I think to your comment earlier about your PowerPoint slides and just being humble about it and laughing a little bit at yourself, you've got to have some humility. Like, I think where people go wrong is like, ah, I got this all covered. And they're afraid to ask questions or ask for help or lean on people because that might communicate that they're weak or don't, you know, don't know it all. And I think that's the worst mistake people can make. Yeah. I would even say that the precursor to humility is self-awareness. And I think a lot of people get themselves in trouble because of a lack of self-awareness, which then has a lot of impacts around the way that you can be humble or have humility or show humility in certain situations. Yep. Okay. So one of the things, I think this was you and I talking before this, but you said something really cool. And you mentioned it earlier in, in this show, but you said, I give a shit about people not mailing it in. What does that mean? I think, especially as a company gets bigger, there is the ability to be the people in the Silicon Valley episodes that were on the roof, right? That are just, they know they can hide. In lounge chairs. Yeah, exactly. They can rest and vest. And, and I think what happens in that case is that that work, unless you're overstaffed and you have more people than you know what to do with, that work is going to fall on other people's shoulders that are always hungry and always you know, willing to do more. And I just, I want to bring people on that I know are hungry, that are passionate about the company we're working at, that are passionate about the mission. And that doesn't mean working all hours of the night and working weekends and all of that, but I want people there that really want to be there. I don't like when people kind of half-ass stuff. What does that look like? How do you know? I think that it's a good question. I think there's an element of sloppiness. There is, I think in marketing and not, this could be somewhat about ability and not just about work ethic, but there is a literalness that takes away from your marketing being memorable and telling a story. And I think people always have to remember that at the end of the day, you're selling something. You are trying to get people excited about something. And just to lay out the facts is not necessarily going to bring someone in. And I always say you've got to earn the right to speak to your audience. Mm. And that means building content sometimes that's not explicitly about all the features and, and nuts and bolts of your product, but you're talking about why it's important to them why they should care about your category mm-hmm. and how it's actually affected the lives, like the personal lives of the people that use it. I always say like, think about the thing, you know, in software a lot, like think about if you're selling B2B software, what is the metric that your buyer is going to get yelled at about in a QBR? Mm. What keeps them up at night? And, you know, how can you think about how our product solves that problem and will ultimately put them in a better position career wise or, you know, yeah. Within their company. So, so let's imagine you get a copy. Can you tell is maybe one signal of not putting in the appropriate effort, complete lack of creativity? Like, hey, you obviously didn't really critically think about this because you just gave me the most. Well, I don't even know what it would be in marketing speak, but just something plain Jane. Yeah. I don't know. I, I don't know. You tell me. Yeah. 
I mean, I think there's a couple of different examples, right? I think that there are there's laziness around metrics sometimes. Like people will just report the met. Okay, well, we hit, you know, we had five thousand people show up to this event, and I'm like, is that good? I don't know how yeah. many people showed up last year to this event. What was our target? What was our? So I think metrics without context is mailing it in sometimes for me. I think when you get down to marketing stories, like you could be like, okay. I'll put it in a Twilio context just because that's one I know. We as Twilio send SMS notifications at X percent deliverability rate and it's they're always on time and blah, blah, blah. And sure, factual, important, but not memorable, right? Whereas you could say, hey, you know what? Blue Apron, one of the most successful food delivery services, what they care about is building trust with their customers and especially parents who just want to make sure that they can put a meal on the table after a long day of work. Well, how do they do that? They build trust with their customers and they do that through communications. Communication is powered by Twilio. And that sense, it's like puts it in a real world context. It's much more, it's, yeah, sure. It's not getting into the like nuts and bolts of, of SMS, but at the end of the day, it's going to be more memorable and what sticks with someone. I like the way you put that. Can I keep digging on this a yeah, little bit? Sure. Let's imagine that you hire, I don't know, me. Okay. <laughs> that would suck for you, but let's imagine that you did. And I'm, pretty set in my ways. I still think I'm pretty young, but I'm pretty set in my ways. I think I'm generally what I'm going to be for the most part, plus or minus a little bit. But I think there's a lowest common denominator set of characteristics, one of which is hard work that I have or don't at this point. A, do you agree with that? And B, do you think, I guess if you don't, can you cultivate? If someone like me walks in and you realize, oh no, he's not a very hard worker. Can you fix that? It's a tough one for me to answer. I'm not a psychologist. I think that there might be people that just hard work's not their thing. That's just not. Like, are you trying to coach someone through that or are you just letting them go? Well, what I will say is that sometimes people's motivations are not lined up with what they're doing. Mm. And I think that as a manager is your responsibility to dig in. People might not be motivated by whatever project they're on mm -hmm. or they might not be motivated by title or they might not be motivated by stock. Most importantly, they might not be motivated by the same things you were motivated. And I think as a manager, you've got to deprogram yourself to be like, okay, I was student council president, you know, and I, I wanted to be on the varsity soccer team. And I would like, I was always kind of wanting to like have these kind of achievements under my belt, but that's not necessarily like the hundred percent right way to do things. Yeah. And you've got to have empathy for all different types of approaches and interests. And I think that that's where some managers struggle because they try to run their same playbook on every employee. Yeah. And so someone appearing to be lazy or disengaged might just not be yep. motivated by exactly what they're doing, but you could put them on something else and they completely flourish and shine. Totally. Totally. Okay. I guess I can't give up on this thing. Is there something to be said for like, now that you've been working at home for the last couple of years, I just imagine it's kind of cool for your kids to see that mom works really hard. I don't think they have that perspective if you're not at home. I don't know. I feel like it's hard to, it's easy to say, it's hard to show. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's really interesting. I thought about it a lot because I think there's some huge pluses, obviously, of being home. I, my kids come in the door at three every day and they'll come and make a guest appearance on Zoom. And I love that. And they're, you know, slipping me notes about something stupid or whatever. It's just funny. <laughs> my uh, seven-year-old came over the other day and she had my husband's men's health magazine. And it said, check out Chris Maloney's butt or something, you know, from Law & Order. Law and Order. I'm like, okay. She thought it was hilarious. So those moments just are awesome and obviously wouldn't get that being in an office. But it's interesting. Like, I think they do recognize how much I'm working now that I'm at home. But it's also it's different. You know, I think when you're at the office, it's kind of out of sight, out of mind. And in some ways, it's almost worse in that sense from being home because they're like, oh, God, like mom's totally not paying attention to us right now. Whereas right. you're, if you're at the office, you're just right. in the office. Right. And so there's that kind of trade off or, you know, my husband will come in and say he wanted to like load up a clipper card today. And I was just like listening to a call and like trying to pay. And bless his heart. He's awesome and does so much for us. But, you know, if I were at the office, you, that just wouldn't happen. And now yep. I feel like I'm not paying attention. You know, so it's hard. Yeah. To, you kind of have to context switch more than you want. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. I was at home yesterday prepping for this and I was at the kitchen table and my mother walked in and we started talking and I'm like, I take my prep seriously. And so I was like, I had this really guilty feeling and I kind of snapped at her. Sorry, mom. And it was more like, hey, aren't we busy right now type thing? Yeah. Because I felt I was like stuck in these two worlds of I need to prep and work, 
but I also am in your home. Yeah. And they're like, well, you're here. Like, right. I'm going to talk to you. But you're like, pretend I'm not here. Like, pretend <laughs> this is like an office in San Francisco right now because I do. I'm like in a different lane right now. You yeah. know, so that's hard. You feel like a jerk. But I'm always like, remember when I wasn't here from right. like 730 right. to six every day? Like, <laughs> it, it, this is a little bit better than that. So I think we're all trying to figure it out. Yeah. OK, so moving along, because otherwise I'm going to keep you here for three hours and you're going to miss your jazz show tonight. You then got to Twilio in 2018. Turned out to be a pretty good decision. I have had Mark, the CRO on. Is he the CRO still? He is. He is. He's fantastic. And were you peers? How did, what was that? Yeah, we were we were peers. And when my boss, George Hugh, decided to leave the company, Mark stepped into his role. Got it. Yeah. Makes sense. Yep. Whose party you're going to tonight. That's right. That's right. Good. So how did that, I'd love to know that Salesforce was your baby. Yeah. You know, that made your career. You could have kept going. I think you probably could have taken a shot at the CMO gig there. What happened? How'd it go? How'd you find Twilio, et cetera? I was having a great time at Salesforce. And obviously I learned a ton over the course of 11 years. And I know I would have continued to learn more and more. I just think as I got to my third year running SalesCloud, I kind of knew what the fourth lap around the track was going to be for that product line. And I'd say this generally, I think that that's partially why I've thought about what exists beyond Twilio. I think as a marketer, you've got kind of a rhythm to a marketing year, especially in B2B software. It's all pretty similar. You've got CKO in January or sales kickoff in January. You most likely have some sort of roadshow where you go to your top cities by opportunity. Then you maybe have a user conference either before summer or right after summer. And then you do annual planning and then it's sales kickoff again. There's kind of a rhythm to B2B marketing. And I think after you do that for three or four years, it's sometimes good for the company to switch in new energy and new creative thought. Yep. Because after three or four years, you've got a lot of the kind of ideas out of that leader. And not that it's just about the leader CMO. And again, it's all about like who you hire underneath. But I was talking to a colleague, another one of those CMOs on the that list that you mentioned. 11, yes, yep. yes. One yep. of the 11. Or one of the 40 that you call up. Yep. That's right, right. Or, no, one, of not... the, or one of the 2,000 that liked your post today. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we were agreeing, like it's sometimes good to go and tackle a new category or a new segment just to kind of recharge yourself as a marketer and also to bring new energy to whatever company you're landing in. So anyways, long story short, I was turning the corner on year four, but I was super happy. I had a lot of friends. I had I knew that there were other things to do at Salesforce, but George Hugh reached out and I've always admired George from afar. He's an incredible executive, just super smart. One of the best marketers I've ever worked with was the CMO of Salesforce and the COO. And he was looking for a CMO. And I I kind of at first thought, you know, hey, I'm happy. I'm going to stay here. I'm on the big cloud. Like, that's a pretty awesome opportunity. And then I kind of said, why am I not thinking about this? This is a CMO role. I've always said I wanted to be a CMO. It's in San Francisco. It's for a platform company, which I really love the idea of working for a company that's focused on a platform that gives you a lot of places to grow and learn. And so I'm like, I'm going to you know, at least have a, some conversations. And so I went to my first interview with George and then I, I talked to Jeff Lawson, the CEO, and I came home and I said to my husband, I'm like, well, I didn't get that job, but it was an awesome experience. And if anything, it, it shows me that being at a larger company now, I'm losing some of my marketing muscles. Like I'm not in the trenches of messaging, positioning a product from scratch, and I'm not writing detailed press releases. And I missed that. And I felt in some ways I was doing more internal marketing than external marketing mm. at that point. And so obviously one thing that led to another, I got the role and it was one of the best decisions I made. I've totally loved the experience of being at Twilio and growing the company from a thousand employees to now 7,000 from 400 million in revenue to 2.8 billion has Crazy just been run. a super fun experience. What was the toughest interview question that they asked you? Well, I mean, anyone who knows George who's listening uh, knows George's, he'll, he always has a, a line. He says, words matter. And he's very you know, particular about messaging positioning. He's fantastic at it. He'll tinker till the last minute. And so he was asking me about 
how we should position Twilio moving forward and me not knowing a ton about telecom at the time. You know, he's asking Mm -hmm. me pretty specific things and I'm trying to dance around it in broad strokes. Yeah. But yeah, it brought me back to Salesforce 2013, 2014, when we'd be in a lot of those types of sessions with him and, and just watching his mind work. It was just I was like hopeful walking out of that that I would get the opportunity because I knew just to like learn from him and and sit near him for any amount of time, I was going to get some of those messaging positioning muscles back. I asked, do you know Megan Eisenberg? I do. She's amazing. Yeah. So you two are my first inaugural CMO guests. Oh, fantastic. Uh, So I'm very excited about that. I had her on just last week or two weeks ago. Episode gets released probably soon before yours. And I kind of like had to dig at this for a little bit and we talked and it came out eventually that or later on in the episode that she had applied. So she was at DocuSign having the ride of her life. And, you know, she gave a similar answer to you. This opportunity came up at MongoDB. It was incredibly exciting. I admire Dave, et cetera. And turns out she applied for the CMO role that she was like competing for and didn't end up getting it. And she's like, it's the best thing that's ever, ever happened to me. Did that happen? I'm just wondering. Or did you, was it like, hey, I'm actually like, I am closing this door at Salesforce and I am, I don't want to go up anymore. Like I'm done here. No, I wasn't in contention. I was not like in the running for that role. And I just, I honestly didn't know that I would be the right Sure. Like my two paths at the time were to run product marketing, which Stephanie Buscemi was running at the time. She's now the CMO of Confluent. She ended up being the CMO of Salesforce. Yep. Or it was to be the the CMO of the company. And I just I didn't see myself in either of those roles. Makes sense. And so it was kind of like, all right, well, where am I going next? It yeah. wasn't you know, I wasn't gunning for it, but. I do. I've always I really did enjoy my role at desk.com, yeah. even though on a much smaller product. And I like seeing the full mix of everything. Yeah. I just I didn't know that I wanted to do that. First off, I don't know that I would have gotten the job at that yeah. scale. Yeah. But second, I felt like for my first CMO role, like I wanted to do it somewhere else, somewhere else. That makes sense. Yeah, you're really doing a good job sidestepping my basically just making up questions that trying to like create into existence here. OK, so. Yeah, no, there is no drama on that front. That's too bad. I'm just trying to find some, you know. So one of the things that Mark and I talked about on our episode was when he joined, which was what was the time frame? Didn't he join like kind of he went through the Auth0 acquisition, right? Authy, sorry, Uh, the Authy acquisition. Auth0 was Okta. That was probably around the same time as when you were joining? He's actually been there for a bit. He's been there, uh, I think, over seven years through the Authy acquisition. One of the things that he and I talked about was Twilio had a very specific culture that was not go-to-market centric in the sense that it was very self-serve with billboards that say, ask your developer, right? That is That really, I think, captures the ethos of Twilio. And what you see in a lot of product-led companies, Atlassian, Twilio, you name it, go down the list, is that there is a shift that has to happen. And it's sometimes not an easy one. Did you feel that? Was that something that, had that culture already changed by that point from like all product oriented to, well, sales and marketing actually aren't aren't the bad guys here? You know, we we can help. I I don't know. Maybe again, I'm making something up. No, no, I think that that was absolutely the case. I think that some of the shift had already started to happen before I got there, but it was still very much product and engineering focused company. Mm -hmm. And it still is today in a lot of ways. Developers will always be at the core of Twilio Mm -hmm. and and that's what makes that company so special. But, you know, I think that there were a couple of things that we had to learn along the way. I think there was some, when I started, we had about 30 salespeople, which is crazy. And I said in this famous blog post now. I was at my first sales kickoff, like one of my first weeks at Twilio, and I asked the rep next to me like what her territory was. And she's like, oh, all the Bay Area, all enterprise. And I'm like, okay, where I'd come from Salesforce and people had like, you know, half of a city block. So that- How much revenue was the company doing at that point? About 400 million. 400 million. And one rep still owned the Bay? Yes. So that tells you how small our sales team was at the time. 400 million, there's 30 reps in the company? Yes. So oh, man, this is going to make my job so much harder with our founders. Now they're going to be like, see, Jim, and I told you, we don't, what have we told you, we, this is fine. We can have a couple of reps. All right, continue. Sorry. So yeah, it was pretty incredible. The self-service and developer led motion that the company had built. And I think as we started to attract larger and larger customers and to have conversations higher up in organizations with C-level 
employees or business unit owners or line of business owners, there was more of a need to provide visibility beyond what was happening this quarter or next quarter. And so go-to-market has worked really closely with product to be more proactive on roadmaps, around communications, around what's coming around and, you know, by product line, because as you're dealing with larger and larger enterprise customers, they need to be able to plan with you. And that was just a new motion because generally developers, they don't want to hear about things that aren't going to be ready or they can't get their hands on today. Yeah. And so that was a shift. And I think that there was some kind of one of Twilio's values that I really like is no shenanigans. And I think they thought there was an element of shenanigans and kind of talking about these future products that weren't ready yet. And so I think we had to shift that to be like, actually, it's less shenanigan-y to actually give these customers visibility into what they should build or shouldn't build in the future based on kind of what we've got coming off the assembly line. Yeah, I think the other obvious thing that ends up happening as you go up market is that deals get bigger. And when deals get bigger, the signature starts landing on other people's desks. Absolutely. And usually those desks have a C level title. And so inevitably at some point, those are questions that are being asked that were never being asked of those developers before. Yep. Or of the respective organization that you're selling to. Yep. That's the first thing that usually happens. They need to know what the hell's going on. Yeah. Speaking of values, I give a presentation to our startups of what do great reps do? And what do great companies do? And one of the examples that I give of what great companies do is I have a picture of the Twilio red chucks. Oh, yeah. And I think it's worth retelling. Why don't you tell it? What is that? Please tell the story. Yeah. So Twilio has a number of different values that I think are all really great and that you see at Twilio. They're not just written on the website and never acted on. And one of them is wear the customer's shoes. So making sure that we're always thinking about the customer experience, what happens when a developer lands on the website and can't find the documentation they want, or what happens at an event when someone doesn't get connected with the right person or feels like, you know, we didn't answer their questions properly. And so at the offices, when we're all in the office on a more regular basis, we'd have customers come in and present to them or whatever the meeting was about. And we would exchange their shoes their actual shoes on their feet for a pair of Twilio chucks. And so you'd go in the Twilio offices and see all these customer shoes kind of hanging around and it would say, you know, oh, here's Chip Potter from Nike or here's whoever from so cool. Bank of America or whatever the customer was. So. so cool. Okay, I have more, turns out. So a couple of questions. One, and please, if I'm getting too personal, please let me know, but you started at Twilio and then your first couple of weeks, can you tell the story of what happened with your son, with Parker? Yeah, I mean, it was- And again, if this is too personal- No, like, no, no. I actually enjoy talking about it because I think that there's a lot of people out here with similar situations that are kind of scared to share at their workplace. But it, it was, my, my son is autistic. He's on the autism spectrum. And we always, we kind of had an early indication that he might be on that path. But for all the talk of autism, it's very hard to get a diagnosis. And a lot of people would say, oh, he's a boy or, oh, you know, maybe he's just a late talker or all these things. But over the course of going to preschool for a couple of years and you know seeing a bunch of different therapists and specialists, we thought it was probably more than that. And so my first year at Twilio, we got an official diagnosis that that was what was happening. And we had tried to kind of keep him in a fully mainstreamed school. There's a school right down the street from our house and, you know, convenient and all of our friends in the neighborhood go there and all those things. And, you know, kindergarten was great and first grade was a disaster. And that was my first year at Twilio. And, you know, he was getting sent home every day. He turned the hose on the principal. I mean, just you name it, it happened. And I'm traveling and I'm doing all these things. And first CMO gig. Yeah. And my husband is not just dealing with that situation, but we have two girls too, and he's keeping all the plates spinning. And it was just, it was stressful. We had to figure out another school for him to go to, and you've got to be your own advocate in those situations. And it's hard when you're trying to kind of juggle all those things, but we have him in a program now that we're really happy with that is at a public school in our town. And It's basically an autism immersion program where he's in a general ed class for 70% of the day and then get services the other 30%. But even that, you know, there's just, there's weird stages you go through, at least for me, as you're kind of figuring this out about your child, you go through denial, you go through like the, you know, why is this happening to me? 
you go through the, oh, we're just going to, I, we're going to keep him on this like normal path and then he'll kind of snap in line. And I wish I just had realized earlier, like getting him the specialized help that he needed was going to be the best path for him long-term. What was it like being Sarah in 2018 when you find all this out, it's your son and your CMO of Twilio, you feel like huge responsibilities on both of these things and you're traveling that feeling of guilt that we described earlier when you're home and the kids want your attention what was your mindset like it was stressful i I won't lie i definitely had like panic attacks and you'd wake up in the middle of the night and being like you know on a work trip and being like oh my god like is did anyone read to parker tonight or you know like you just there's it's easy to get like the parent guilt kind of moments yeah but i think for me I always feel better when I know that I'm doing everything I can to help with the situation. And once we had talked to enough people who are in similar situations and talked to the right specialists in our school district, I'm not talking about fancy doctors or anything else, like, you know, really working with the special ed group in my school district, I just had way more peace of mind and felt that we were on a better path. But yeah, it was super stressful and it definitely... It showed up at work at times and I had to just be honest with my boss and say, look, I don't want to make a big deal about this, but I'm going through this and there's going to be certain meetings I'm going to have to take and certain things I'm going to have to miss because this is my family's always going to be number one for me. Yeah. Were you hesitant to tell your boss originally? No, of course you'll want to be the perfect employee, yeah. especially as you're trying to prove yourself. But I had the good fortune of knowing George for a long time yeah. and you know, I, I knew yeah. that he'd be understanding and, yeah. um, and he was. I appreciate you sharing that. Sorry, I don't mean to pry. No, I mean, uh, I think there's a lot of people who don't want to have any kind of home situation be perceived as a weakness towards their yeah. day job, but we're all human and yeah. not everything's gonna be perfect. Yeah. I've heard you say that you got a career coach for the first time at Twilio. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, And you left it there. So, of course, I wanted to pull on that string a little bit more. For those that haven't had a career coach, as part of getting a career coach, generally, it's not just about professional therapist that is a sounding board, but it's also the API, no pun intended, between your colleagues and you to kind of serve as that liaison for 360 feedback and all these other things. What was feedback that you got that surprised you? Was there any surprises, anything you learned or realized that you didn't expect? Well, first off, I asked to get a coach. It wasn't forced upon me. I wanted to do it because I have a great network in Salesforce. All those 40 people that I text, they've all had a common experience and we all worked there for a long time and all those things. And I wanted to get some perspective and mentorship from someone that was completely unbiased that really didn't know me from anyone else. And I got connected with this coach who's awesome. And he's very practical. He gives you homework. He gives you assignments and he's tough. He stays on you. And so he did the whole 360 process. And I think when you do that process, I think for most people, I don't know, maybe there is this self-awareness gap for certain people, but I think it's things you kind of know under the surface, Mm -hmm. but then you hear them and you're like, ah, you know, like it just still is like, you know, stings you a little bit. Right. Yeah. And So some of the feedback I got was that I needed to stand in the fire and decisions more and not back down. Some of the feedback I got was that I needed to hold my team more accountable to dates and deadlines and be more hard charging with them. And after I heard it and I could think through examples, I'm like, okay, that makes sense. I also think of myself as like a hard charging person and someone that's pretty ambitious. And so I'm like, wait, that's not me. But then as I think about it, I'm like, oh, okay, I could get it's sometimes it's relative too to the other people on your team. Someone might be like even crazier with deadlines or measures or whatever it is. And so it's just a great process. I recommend it. I've had some managers in the past who don't really believe in coaching and I a hundred percent disagree. I think it's so good to get some outside perspective and just get some feedback in that context. And I can't say enough about it. Yeah. I crave it. And actually there's, Generally, a consistent theme that I see amongst most of my guests who are super successful, C-level executives, et cetera, and it's almost always that they've done a really good job somehow of cultivating really tight feedback loops. And generally, those feedback loops are negative feedback loops that they want. So, And I've said this before, and 
Kelsey always gets mad at me because I always bring up his name, but Dan Shapiro said something, who's the CEO of LinkedIn. He said something that has stuck with me ever since he said it, and it was, the further up you go in your career, the less oxygen there is, the less air there is. As you go up in altitude, the less ability you have to receive feedback because you're more of a boss. You are have more influence and control over things. And so- And people are less likely to tell you the truth. And people are less likely to tell you the truth because I actually don't know why. Well, I do know why. Because they don't wanna, you know, because you're always right because of your position of power. Yeah. And so the point that he was making, which is the one that I just made, is basically like those that I can surround myself with that give me direct feedback, I absolutely cherish. And it's super important. Anyway, the career coach thing just reminded me of that. Yeah, absolutely. That person definitely plays that role for me. And I also have four older siblings who are never hesitate to tell me yeah. uh, what I'm doing wrong. So I definitely have that baked into my life. But I also outside of that, I do have people that have seen me at all different phases and know my weaknesses and know what's below the surface. And they're always the people I call when I really need the yeah. direct feedback. It sucks, though. I love it, but it stings every time I was home and I was hanging out with buddies from high school high school and these were good friends back in the day and i don't get to see them as much anymore but whenever we're home and they're home in san diego we try and get together and one of them was like hey i was listening to one of your podcast episodes and dude you got to get better with idioms and i know i'm not good with idioms because my parents are first generation they don't know idioms they moved here when they were in their mid-20s like yeah. english wasn't their first language yeah. so at my kitchen table no one ever spoke in idioms. I don't even know if that's the right appropriate expression, but I think I said something like, to one of my guests, the stage is yours, when I think the appropriate expression is that the floor, floor is, is yours. yours. Yeah, okay. So anyway, I remember he said that, and he's like, you should just work on that. And I was like, ah, that stings. And I've just been simmering on it for almost a week now. It still stings. And but aren't I'm you glad they said something? I'm super grateful. Yeah. I'm super grateful because I was like, that's something I should be more aware of. And maybe I should tr stop trying to be so smart and witty all the time and just say what I want to say. Yeah. Like, hey, go ahead. The marketing copy can just be really direct sometimes. It doesn't yeah. have to be this really fancy thing. And I think I get caught up trying to overcompensate by sitting across the table from people like you feeling not as good and needing to use fancy idioms that just then make me sound stupid. So anyway, I was actually really thankful for it, even though it still stings now. Yeah. I mean, I think that if you're closed off to feedback, you're not going to get better. And so that's where I see a lot of people stall out where yeah. it gets to the point where their manager is too scared to give them feedback and then they are what they are. And yeah. so I always look for people in my leadership team to be humble and be willing to ask for help where they might not have the perfect expertise or to be open to how they can get better. Yeah. So it's your last day. Did they throw you a party? And I hate, I think it's the dumbest thing. So they threw you a party, right? It's a little bit weird with COVID and everything else. Right. And so I did a small day trip to wine country with my leads, which was awesome. Oh, we cool. went to lunch and we had a great time. And that was what I've we never did. understood the goodbye party. Can you help me understand that? I just Oh, I mean, I'm a huge fan of goodbye parties. Oh, I mean, when I when I moved I from missing? New York to LA, I think I had like four or five. So Okay, but those are personal goodbye parties. Yeah, sure, sure. Those are I don't know. Maybe I'm just a pessimist. <laughs> so you had a party. Yeah. We had a little party and it was great. I love my team and I consider them family at this point. So how do you feel about it now? Today's your last day. Yeah. What an honor for me to be able to have you as the sun goes down literally <laughs> on your last day. How do you feel? I will always look back on my time at Twilio super fondly. I've learned so much in four years. I've learned a ton about developers. I've learned a ton from Jeff. I've learned a ton from George. Mm -hmm. And I've made a lot of great friends. I think what's interesting right now in this time to go transition jobs is I signed off on one Zoom at three o'clock today and I'm going to just join another Zoom tomorrow and it's going to be a new company. It's just very odd to not physically go into an office and onboard and right. meet. I haven't met anyone in person yet at all. So ever. No. So that's just different. I mean, that's the world we're living in now. And I'm excited about their approach to remote work and being very open to that. Two years ago, if this job was open, it would probably be New York based. And that would right. be out of the picture for me because I have a lot of roots here in the Bay Area and that's where my family is. So. And it's the news will be out by the time this episode releases, but it is for the CMO role. That's right. Can I ask you a question? Sure. As I looked at your experience and I looked at everything you did and I pattern matched that with your ambition, 
I thought you would go for George's role. Not at Twilio, but in terms of responsibility. I thought you'd want to be a COO. Again, tell me if I'm making this up, but I was just thinking a lot about this before as you were coming in today. And I was like, where's your head at today? What's Sarah thinking? Yeah, that, no, that, and I get that question, question a lot. Not that do you want to be a COO, but I get questions of do you want to be a general manager? Yeah. Do you want to go be a CEO of a smaller company? And for me, I love being a CMO. I love getting to be creative. I love getting to sweat the numbers. I love that mix of the role. And I love the phase of growth that Attentive's in. It's about the exact same size as when I started Salesforce and Twilio, a thousand yep. people. And I love that opportunity to build a marketing team from the ground up and really have an impact. And so that's what drives me more. It's funny because I've kind of reached the peak of where I want to go. I've always wanted yeah. to be a CMO and that was kind of the end game. And so at points that's in conflict of me always trying to level up and reach some new threshold. But for me, it's, I think to do it this time around without the ecosystem of Salesforce people surrounding me either is the new challenge. It's a redeveloped chip on your shoulder. Yeah, there you go. All right. We'll see. I have a question for you. So I don't know why I have to preface it with I have a question for you. That's all I do is just ask questions. I don't need to keep saying that. So I was pissed when we talked originally and you told me you're leaving and I missed you by, well, I don't know, three to six months. I wish somehow we could have done this earlier. We could have gotten to know each other and I could have recruited you to be a CMO of one of our portfolio companies. Too little, too late. But do you think if you joined a portfolio company, like a hundred person company, 200 person company, do you think you'd fail? I think things are scarier from afar. And I think once you get into it, it's not as scary of a proposition. I think that there are totally different things you need to worry about when you're dealing with a hundred to 200 person company versus a thousand person company. But a lot of the mechanics are the same. And even at Salesforce, when I worked on desk.com, I didn't have really the help of the corporate marketing team. Of course, I had the brand halo of Salesforce. Don't get me wrong. But I was still responsible for a lead number in a really crowded market with a finite amount of budget and, you know, a team of 14 people. So I had to operate at that scale, too. And sure, the mechanics were different as I moved to Sales Cloud or as I worked at Twilio, but in terms of scale, but a lot of the kind of fundamentals are still similar. And I think a CMO role is often about how you think about tackling projects, how you think about breaking them up into manageable pieces, and then getting everyone to row the same direction. And I think whether you're doing that with 10 people or 200 people, a lot of those same approaches and tactics don't change all that much. Okay, that's fair. I didn't think you'd fail either for the record. I'm just pissed. Um, <laughs> all right, I asked the same questions to close most of these things. The first, what does the word grit mean to you? I think it means sticking with things no matter what comes your way. I guess you're gonna have a hard time answering this, but generally this is like, all right, throw you a plug. Do you have any roles that you know you will be hiring for starting tomorrow? If not, no problem. But if you do, feel free to shout them out. And then part two of my question, might as well finish on a two-part question. What would be the best way to get a hold of you if someone listens to this and is inspired and, and wants to come work with you? Sure. So Attentive's hiring like crazy. We're going to be hiring across all different types of functions, typical kind of B2B marketing org. So creative, growth, product marketing, brand, there's going to be roles across the entire team. And the easiest way to get in touch with me is either DM me on Twitter, Sarah Varney Bright, or on LinkedIn. I'm always happy to connect with people and help people if they're getting stuck on something. Sarah, thank you. Yep. Thank you. That's it. Thanks for listening. If you're just discovering the podcast, we have a lot more episodes with CROs from organizations like Snowflake, Twilio, Slack, LinkedIn, Box, etc. If you want to keep up or support the show, the best way to do so is by following us on Spotify, subscribing on Apple, and leaving a review. Thanks. Talk soon. <laughs>